Amen. You can live in Gainesville, Florida and still be a Georgia Bulldog fan. It's dangerous, but it's possible. You can consider yourself a card-carrying Democrat, yet at times vote for a Republican. You can be an employee at Lowe's and yet on occasion shop at the Home Depot. When such an event happens, it's an anomaly. It's out of character. It is abnormal for sure, but it's possible. And you can be charismatic, exercise spiritual gifts, be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet still be selfish and carnal. Sadly, the Corinthian Christians were living proof. In 1 Corinthians 12, we find the great chapter on the body of Christ and spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14 is the Bible's fullest explanation of the most controversial gifts, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and interpretation. And believers in Corinth excelled in such matters. Yet sandwiched in between these two epic chapters, 12 and 14, we find 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 addresses what the Corinthians lacked most. There was a short supply of love. At the close of chapter 12, Paul encourages his readers to desire the best gifts. The gifts of the Spirit are good gifts. We should desire the best gifts. We can benefit from spiritual gifts, but these gifts are not the most important issue in church life. As Paul tells us, there is a more excellent way, the greatest of God's gifts to the body is love. The Corinthian Christians were all about flaunting a gift, rattling off in tongues, looking spiritual rather than loving their brother. Love, it seems, was an afterthought. And so Paul tells them in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In chapter 14, Paul explains the purpose and value of the gift of tongues. But don't forget his words here. Divine language without divine love is just noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Special revelation, supernatural insight, even mountain-moving faith is futile compared to the power of love. You can have a juiced-up faith, a faith strong enough to bench-press Stone Mountain, but it's worthless, it's fruitless, unless it's coupled with love. Verse 3 And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. You can die a martyr's death, he says. You can make impressive sacrifice, go to great efforts to do good deeds. Yet without love, all your efforts are futile. Imagine having a martyr's courage. You travel to Iran. You preach Jesus on the streets. You end up beheaded. But if your actions weren't motivated by love for Jesus and love for people, then God remains unimpressed. Love suffers long. I'll never forget an interview I heard years ago on Focus on the Family. James Dobson was interviewing a lady who had been diagnosed with a cancer. 
And she had been given a choice. One doctor had told her she should live out the rest of her days on a beach somewhere in Mexico. Go to Acapulco and spend your days. Enjoy the life you have left. While another doctor told her that she could undergo numerous rounds of grueling, brutal radiation and chemotherapy with the slight hope of extending her life maybe two, four years at the most. Well, she chose to extend her life, if only for one day. And she wrote a a short letter to her three small children explaining why. She says, I've chosen to survive for you. And this has horrible costs, including pain, the loss of my good humor and moods I won't be able to control. But I must try this, if only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer. For that minute could be the one in which you might need me when no one else will do. For this I intend to struggle tooth and nail, so help me God. Love suffers long and is kind. Love isn't harsh or mean. It's tender in its approach to people. Love does not envy. It never wants the blessing that God chooses for someone else. In other words, it reads the name tags on the gifts before it grabs them. And it's happy for the person who gets the nice gift. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It doesn't show off or attract attention to itself. And it's not puffed up. Love is humble. It doesn't mind picking up a towel and washing some dirty feet from time to time. The purer the love, the lesser the pride. As a father of four kids, I picked four noses wiped four rumps, cleaned the wax out of eight ears. And I can honestly tell you, I never once minded, at least not the noses and ears. Real love doesn't mind the dirty work. And love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Love doesn't intend to embarrass anyone. It's always concerned for the feelings of the other guy. Reminds me of a young bride-to-be who went to the store to purchase material to make her wedding dress. And she asked the clerk for the noisiest material available. The clerk thought that was an odd request, noisy material? That is, until the young girl explained, my fiancé is blind, and I want him to hear when I reach the altar so he won't be embarrassed. Love does not behave rudely, nor does it seek its own. Love is not provoked, or as the New International Version puts it, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't hold grudges. Love thinks no evil. It doesn't jump to negative conclusions. It always gives the benefit of the doubt. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love is a powder keg. Never give up on love. Even when you're tired of extending it or frustrated over love's rejection, just keep on loving. Refuse to resort to lesser methods. Just keep loving people and loving people and loving people, for love never fails. Verse 8 
But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. You know, in eternity, spiritual gifts will no longer be needed to compensate for our inadequacies. We won't need prophecy, for God will speak to us face to face. Or tongues, we'll be fluent in all languages. Or words of knowledge, for we'll know all truth. Spiritual gifts are for time. When we're faced with our limitations, they're not for eternity. Verse 9 tells us, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And the perfect he's talking about is the perfection and completeness of eternity. Of course, this is the verse that skeptics like to use to deny the perpetuity or the continuance of spiritual gifts. They attempt to deny that spiritual gifts are for today. They interpret that which is perfect as the New Testament. The Greek word translated perfect means complete. And thus, non-Pentecostals conclude that when the New Testament canon was completed or finalized, God pulled the gifts of the Spirit from circulation. The church no longer needs them. I couldn't disagree more. For starters, the New Testament was never considered to be a total revelation or a complete revelation. You remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions seeing things in heaven that were not lawful for him to even discuss, let alone write down in the New Testament. The seven thunders of Romans of Revelation 10 verse 4 were heard by John, and yet he was prohibited from writing them down. Even the New Testament doesn't tell us all that God has revealed. My point is, is that that which is perfect doesn't refer to the New Testament. It refers to the perfection that we'll all enjoy in heaven. That's when spiritual gifts will cease. When we enter God's glory, then we'll no longer need these spiritual gifts. For now, spiritual gifts are standard issue, friend. There's something that we need. They're necessities for our everyday lives. Paul writes in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I put away childish things. This was the verse I used to quote every time I got ready to mow the lawn and had to pick up all the kids' toys that were out in the yard. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And this is the verse that we'll quote in heaven. For one day we'll all reach full maturity, spiritual adulthood. But that won't happen until we get to heaven. Then and only then will the spiritual gifts cease. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. In other words, in the here and now, we see dimly, you know, face to face and knowing as I am known are phrases that speak of our heavenly experience. Complete knowledge is reserved for heaven. It isn't a characteristic of this life. There's no such thing as spiritual high death. Not now. Until we get to heaven, the reception will always be just a little fuzzy. You see, if we had 20-20 knowledge, we wouldn't have to walk by faith. But we don't, and we do. 
This is why we all need supernatural help, all the supernatural help we can get. We need the spiritual gifts. And thus the chapter closes. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. As the old song puts it, without love, you ain't nothing without love. It is the more excellent way. Well, chapter 14 begins. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Pursue love. Make love your goal. It is the greatest. Faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest. Pursue love. Grab it. Hold on to it. Be a practitioner of it. And desire spiritual gifts. It's interesting. Remember the dove of the Holy Spirit. It flies on two wings. And thus we need both the fruits of the Spirit, love, and the gifts of the Spirit. Both the gifts and the graces of the Holy Spirit. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. There is a Christian denomination that has adopted as its official policy towards spiritual gifts the phrase, seek not, forbid not. They, they think they're making, sort of taking a moderate position there, compromised position. But they should also add, and get not. For if you don't seek them, you won't get them. Paul tells us, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. If you don't desire spiritual gifts, you won't get them. In Luke 11, Jesus told his disciples, ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be open to you. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask, and seek, and knock, and keep on asking, and keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. When it comes to these spiritual gifts, we need to seek them. Let's remember that tonight as we study the gifts of prophecy in tongues. These are not just matters we should believe. These are gifts that we should receive. And Paul adds, especially that you may prophesy. When the legendary football coach Bear Bryant directed the Alabama Crimson Tide, he would observe the team's practices from the tower overlooking the field. The Bear trusted his assistant coaches and the playbook to direct the team on field. But when he wanted to address a situation, he would shout down with a bullhorn. And the gift of prophecy is what I call God's bullhorn. God is in his heavenly tower. And he watches us as we live our lives. The on-field instruction is being provided by the Bible, the playbook, and the Holy Spirit. The on-field coach. But there are occasions when our Father in heaven wants to address us specifically and personally. And so he picks up his bullhorn and he speaks to us directly. And this is what happens with the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is instant inspiration. It's like spiritual texting. It comes straight from God's keypad to yours. It's direct messaging. Extemporaneous communication. The Hebrew word translated prophecy, it means to bubble up like a fountain or to tumble forth. The gift of prophecy is a message prompted by God's Spirit that flows from my spirit 
through my mind, out of my mouth, and tumbles forth to the people who are listening. Prophecy is spontaneous and ecstatic. It's an utterance from God. God puts his words in my mind, and I speak them by faith. My mouth becomes God's mouthpiece. Amos 3 verse 8 declares, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God's Spirit most often speaks to us in a still, small voice. But the gift of prophecy, when he speaks to us in prophecy, it comes across as a lion's roar. Verse 2, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. And the rest of chapter 14 is going to contrast the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Understand first, prophecy is a message from God to man. While tongues is man talking to God. This is so important. Prophecy is God speaking to man. Tongues is man speaking to God. Now, in certain hyper-Pentecostal circles, often a tongue is followed by a supposed interpretation that comes across something like this. Thus says the Lord, listen to me, my little children. It's as if the utterance in tongues is God speaking to the group. But this can't be. For tongues is never God speaking to man. It's man speaking to God. Paul is clear, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. It could be now that the supposed interpretation of the tongue was actually a prophecy from God, but if that's true, the tongue remained uninterpreted. Tongues, again, tongues is man speaking to God, not God speaking to man. He goes on, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Now, most people assume that prophecy is foretelling the future. But a word of prophecy may or may not contain a predictive element. The purpose of God conveying a word of prophecy is edification, exhortation, and comfort. In other words, prophecy builds up and stirs up and cheers up. Who wouldn't need that? Builds up, stirs up, and cheers up. For two years, Kathy and I, we struggled to have kids. And at a pastor's conference we had attended, it was on the last weekend of May 1982, Kathy requested prayer from the group of ladies. In response to her request, the ladies all gathered around her, they laid hands on her, they began to pray for her. And one of the ladies prophesied over my wife. And God spoke through this lady, by this time next year, you will have a child. Well, Zachary, my oldest son, was born on May the 29th, 1983, 36 years ago today. One year to the day after that prophecy was given, my son was born. By this time next year, you will have a child. And he was born that exact day, one year later. Isn't that amazing? And what kind of an effect do you think this prophecy has had on our family? It has certainly built up our faith. And it stirred up Zach. 
What a legacy, knowing your birth was foretold directly by God. And whenever Zach has struggled, it has cheered up his parents to know that God still has a plan and a purpose for this boy. He does. This is why Paul says that God, that we should desire spiritual gifts and especially prophecy, for it builds up and stirs up and cheers up when someone prophesies over us. Now, verse 4 explains why Paul prefers prophecy over tongues. Now, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. If no one understands the tongue or the language that's spoken, then it only benefits the person who exercises the gift. It's like a slice of pizza versus a big pizza, a pie for every guy type of thing, you know. I mean, prophecy is God's message to the whole church. Everybody gets a piece of prophecy. Whereas everyone, everyone gets blessed through the word of prophecy, whereas tongues is for the individual. It's that individual slice. Understand? He says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. I personally speak in tongues. I have found it to be a wonderful way to praise and worship God. Yet I also know that tongues is the least of all the spiritual gifts since it's the only gift that doesn't encourage or build up the whole church. It builds me up. But if you hear me speak in tongues, it does nothing for you. Paul says the guy who speaks in tongues gets blessed, but it doesn't benefit the hearers unless the tongue is accompanied by the gift of interpretation. Verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Realize the gift of tongues is usually a language unknown to both the person speaking it and the person hearing the tongue. Acts 2, the Feast of Pentecost, was the exception. When the Spirit was first poured out, Jews from around the world had all gathered there in Jerusalem. And when the disciples spoke in tongues, the crowds were amazed to hear God being praised in their own native languages. But this is probably not how it happened in Corinth. For the church there was not a multilingual church. Everyone spoke the same language or languages. And so to go to church and speak to the congregation in a foreign tongue would make no sense. The goal when the church gathered was to convey truth and biblical insight. He adds, verse 7, Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? Again, communication is the key. For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? Again, the, the emphasis on the battlefield is the same emphasis in the church. Communication, clarity, understanding is what's important. Bugles in battle direct the troops, but if the soldiers can't tell you know, what's being blown... They can't tell if it's charge or retreat, then the army's going to be destined for defeat. Understanding is what's important when you, when you gather the church together. And so likewise, you, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. You, you just, 
If people don't understand what you're saying, then you're just blabbing into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Church is all about clear communication. We should convey the truth, and that's why Paul discouraged the gift of tongues in the public gatherings of the church. Now, verse 12. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Remember, the Corinthians were enamored with spiritual gifts, but they had forgotten the purpose of these gifts. You know, like a little baby sucking on a set of car keys. That little baby's missing the point of the car keys, isn't it? Church isn't just for self-centered entertainment. Or language articulation. Church is to build up the saints. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 13. Therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And so if you're in a small group of believers, if you're waiting on God in a worship setting, and the Spirit prompts you to speak in tongues, that's fine. But if no one else interprets what's been uttered, then the person who uttered, needs to pray for the interpretation themselves. And if the tongue never gets interpreted, then no one is being benefited by what's said, and thus the tongue should cease. For the purpose of any church gathering is the mutual benefit of all. Verse 14 becomes very helpful here. For I pray in a tongue, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays but my understanding is unfruitful. And here, Paul begins to help us understand what it is that we're discussing. For he sheds some insight here on what is the gift of tongues. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but not my understanding. The word tongues means dialects or languages. The gift of tongues is the spirit-given capacity to praise God. Remember, it's man speaking to God. The spirit-given capacity to either praise God or pray to God in a language other than my own native tongue or any language that I may have learned. Through the gift of tongues, the Holy Spirit liberates me to praise God in a free and in an uninhibited way. I become fluent in worship. According to the ethnologue, there are currently 6,912 living languages in the world today. And of those 6,912 languages, I know only one, English. And quite frankly, I know very little of that. The English language consists of 800,000 words. That's excluding the 500,000 technical terms. In an average person's lifetime, he or she will only get around to using about 60,000 of those 800,000 words. And worse, the daily working vocabulary of the average English speaker is only about 7,000 words. This means that I use less than 1% of the one language that I know. 
Now, this isn't a problem until I start to communicate a thought that's vital to me. And I can't find the right words to use. It becomes frustrating then to go groping for words. You've been in that situation where you couldn't get the right words to express what you felt? There are moments when even the most eloquent person gets caught off guard at a loss for words. And this awkward articulation occurs most often in emotional moments, doesn't it? When our hearts are full of love and joy or grief and sympathy. You know, you're about to burst with pent-up emotions, but you can't find the right word to express what it is that you're feeling deep inside. I often feel this toward my wife. I try to communicate my love to her, but she's heard I love you so often, it's become blasé. I can't afford diamonds, so I'm stuck. And this is also a problem in my relationship and fellowship with God. At times, I'm awed by God's presence. I'm amazed by his love. I'm blown away by God's blessing. And when I want to praise him most, the speaker becomes speechless. I love you just doesn't seem to cut it. You see, humans are like this funnel. The narrow neck is our intellect. The wide base is our spirit. And on the spiritual level, we're capable of experiencing deep emotions. The problem, though, is that all of those emotions that we sense on the spirit level then has to be channeled through our constricted intellect and a very limited vocabulary. And our narrowness chokes off the flow of the feelings and bottles up the emotions. It creates a frustration of expression. Yet here is where the Holy Spirit comes to our rescue. For God's Spirit knows every language that has ever been spoken, that's in use now, or that has ever been in use. In addition, according to chapter 13, verse 1, the Holy Spirit is even fluent in the language of the angels. How about that? I'm linguistically limited But the Holy Spirit is not. Therefore, the Spirit can plant words in my mind, words that I don't know, but that accurately and articulately express the depths of my heart. As the words enter my mind, by faith I speak them, believing them to be the Spirit's interpretation of my praise or of my concern. It's through tongues that I become free and fluent rather than fumbling and frustrated. The gift of tongues bypasses my limitations, my mind, and my vocabulary. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 14. My spirit prays, but my understanding, my mind, is unfruitful. Harold Horton explained it this way. The gift of tongues sinks a well into the dumb profundities of the rejoicing spirit liberating a jet of long-pent ecstasy that gladdens the heart of God and man. Have you never in the presence of Jesus felt inarticulate on the very verge of eloquence? I like that. Have you ever felt inarticulate on the very verge of eloquence? We all have, if we're honest. This is why we need to ask God for the gift of tongues. 
He says, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Paul concludes that there is a time and a place for using both the gift of tongues and discernible language. You can pray. You can even sing in tongues or in a learned language. You can do it both ways. He says, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Notice tongues is referred to here as your giving of thanks. Again, tongues is prayer or praise. It's us speaking to God, not God speaking to us. And the idea here, again, is that time and place are crucial. In essence, Paul is saying that the public gatherings of the church are not the place for the gift of tongues. When the church opened up its meetings to everybody and anybody, the uninformed person that Paul mentions, he comes, he's present. This is either an unbeliever or a believer who simply doesn't understand the gift. He's uninformed. And if the point of the meeting is to love and minister to this uninformed person, then why would I use a gift that I know he doesn't understand and can't appreciate? This is why at Calvary Chapel, our public meetings are full of folks who are just getting started in their Christian life, and thus we discourage the gift of tongues. If I spoke in tongues, the novices would either become confused or they'd think I'm weird, or or they wouldn't understand why, why create an environment where that existed. This is why Paul writes in verse 18, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, that is, in the public gathering of the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is letting us know that he spoke in tongues more than anyone, yet he realized that the gift wasn't for the public gathering of the church. Apparently, Paul understood tongues to best be practiced in a person's private devotional life or in a small group of informed believers, but not in the public gatherings of the church where he could run the risk of confusing someone. He says in verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In other words, spiritual gifts and common sense go hand in hand. A baby only cares about himself, doesn't he? And this is how some Christians behave. Being spiritual and being sensitive to the, is, I'm sorry, being spiritual is also being sensitive to the proper setting. Well, verse 21 is where it gets tricky. For Paul writes, In the law it is written, and here he quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 11. With men of other tongues and of other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. 
Now, at first, verse 22 seems to contradict all of the verses and emphasis that has preceded. I thought Paul had established that tongues were for informed believers, but here we're told that they're assigned to unbelievers. Well, the key to understanding the context here is in understanding Isaiah 28. The prophet Isaiah had predicted that an invading army, the Assyrians, would sack Jerusalem. Invaders would speak a foreign language. And thus, when the Jews heard an unknown tongue being spoken in their streets, it would be a sign that judgment had come. Thus, for them, tongues was a sign to unbelievers. But it was a sign of judgment. So when an unbeliever comes into the public gathering and hears someone speak in tongues, it's a sign of judgment to that person. He or she doesn't understand the things of God. What is this going? I don't, I don't make, doesn't make sense to me. You've heaped judgment on them before they've even had an opportunity to hear of God's love. Why condemn them before you try to bring them in? But that's what you do when someone speaks in tongues in this setting. The unbeliever's uncomfortable reaction is proof that they're unfamiliar with the things of God. It's a sign of their alienation from God. Verse 23, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say That you're out of your mind. The fact that they freak out over the tongues and think you're crazy is proof that they're unfamiliar with the things of the Spirit. But is this the first impression you want to make? Somebody comes into your church, you want to highlight their ignorance? Is that what you want to do to them? Of course not. You would rather build a bridge to reach out to them with God's love. He's saying don't scare them before you try to reach them. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Though tongues is confusing to an unbeliever, prophecy is clear and compelling and convincing. And so in the public gatherings of the church, the gift of prophecy is preferable to tongues. This is the reason we stress Bible teaching in our public assemblies. For what is the Bible but prophecy that's been penned? As does impromptu prophecy, the Bible also builds up and stirs up and cheers up. And when a service is dominated by tongues, a few people get blessed. But when we teach the scripture, everyone walks away encouraged. That's preferable. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Apparently, the church at Corinth loved to meet in small groups that had an informal structure where everyone would participate. You could come with a short teaching or with a revelation or with a song of praise, etc., etc. It was kind of a spiritual free-for-all. And that would have been okay if it had really been for all. 
But instead of for all, these meetings were often used by a few haughty folks as a platform to show off spiritually. The meetings in Corinth needed some structure. They needed some discernment. They needed some restraint. But they also needed a whole lot of love. And so Paul tries to address this. First, Paul adds some structure. Verse 27, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. I've attended charismatic meetings where everyone present started speaking and singing in tongues simultaneously. It sort of became a concert of tongues. In fact, this was encouraged. And yet, according to our passage, that's not a biblical practice. Paul says that those who speak in tongues should each take a turn. Then each person who uses the gift should be followed by an interpretation of that tongue. He says, but if there is no interpreter, then let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if there's no one present who can interpret your tongue, then you should cease using the gift. Notice, too, a couple of points here. First, the person with the tongue obviously has the on-off switch. That means that when you speak in tongues, the Spirit gives you the utterance, but you still control the volume and the reverb and the mute button and the on-off switch if necessary. I remember one misguided friend of mine who said he was standing next to a co-worker where he was employed. And he said he suddenly got the urge to speak in tongues, and he just sort of blurted it out. It scared his poor co-worker to death. I would imagine so. But then my friend had the audacity to blame his impulsiveness and lack of discretion on the Lord. He said, I just couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit made me. No, he didn't. You still control the on-off switch. The Holy Spirit doesn't force us to speak. He enables us to speak. But we need to supply the sensitivity to the situation, whatever it might be. Too many beautiful meetings of believers have been interrupted by an errant burst of tongues because someone didn't have control of the on-off switch. Jumping ahead to verse 32, Paul says of the gift of prophecy, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This also applies to the gift of tongues. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Understand the gift of prophecy as well as all the spiritual gifts are subject to human error. In Jeremiah 14, verse 14, the prophet says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. This was a sad situation. The prophets in the days of Jeremiah, they prophesied lies, false truths, deceit. Hopefully, people who prophesy deliberate deceit are few and far between. But we all can be self-deceived. Often well-meaning believers, they get worked up into an emotional lather and they mistake their own imagination for a message from God. It happens. And this is why prophecies need to be judged. 
People have made major life decisions based on what they thought was a prophecy, which wasn't. We would all be wise to put the prophecy to a test. First of all, does it stack up to Scripture? The Holy Spirit's not going to command you to do something that would contradict Scripture. He would be contradicting himself. And then has it been confirmed to you by the same Spirit who gave it to him? In other words, the Holy Spirit, if it's from him, he can confirm it to your heart. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19 through 21 provides us the proper balance. It says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold fast what is good. That's the proper balance. Verse 30. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Whenever someone speaks in the public gathering of the church or in a small group, it needs to be done in a controlled and in an orderly manner. Each person should show restraint and take their turn. The idea of our gathering to learn from one another and to be uplifted is paramount. We don't gather just to show off in front of each other. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. <clears throat> the very first time you see the Holy Spirit in the Scripture is Genesis 1 verse 2. And what is he doing? He's bringing order out of chaos. Where there's no order, people get hurt, don't they? You know, you've heard of, of people being stampeded at a soccer match. You know, there's no crowd control. And this can happen in a church where there's no order. Needs go unmet. People get neglected if there's no organization. God is into order because he loves people. And speaking of order, verse 34 tells us, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Now remember, Paul has already qualified this comment back in chapter 11, verse 5. For there he mentioned women in the church praying and prophesying. Apparently, this was not an absolute prohibition. It doesn't mean that a woman should never open her mouth in church. He's already talked about women praying and prophesying. Again, it comes back to time and place, proper time and place. It could be that in regards to these focal gifts, tongues and prophecy, they're very emotional things. It could be that the ladies in the church were getting carried away. And they were usurping the authority of the male leaders. The Corinthian women needed to remember what Paul had said earlier. That in the church and in the home, the men should lovingly lead and the women should faithfully follow. This is why he adds in verse 34, But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Paul is asserting that angry and argumentative sisters are a blight on the church. And wouldn't we all agree with that? Of course. Again, he isn't talking about proper participation, praying and prophesying. He's talking about rebellion, which would be shameful behavior, not just for women, but for men as well. 
Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? Now Paul figures that some of the Corinthians are going to buck his instructions here. And here he kind of backs them down in advance. He's saying, does the church at Corinth... I mean, I don't think it holds an exclusive claim on the truth. Corinth wasn't the birthplace of the Bible. Who are you to question these things? The church in Corinth, as well as every other church, is subject to the truth that Jesus passed down to the apostles and that is now contained in the New Testament. This is the truth that applies to all churches in all generations. No church is exempt from this biblical truth. And so he closes chapter 14. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Never doubt Paul's recognition of what he wrote. He knew he was pinning sacred scripture. And he challenges others to recognize it. So much so that he doesn't hesitate to put down his detractors in no uncertain terms. He writes to tell them, but if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Pretty bold statement. Finally, he sums up what's been his theme throughout chapter 14. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. And do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Yes, chaos is our enemy, and order is strategically important. But Paul also says, let all things be done. (laughs) We need to give opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in these ways. In every church, there needs to be room in the life of that church for spiritual gifts, for tongues, and for especially prophecy. Yes, these things need to be done decently and in order, but these things need to be done. 